previously on Box Cutters. Like when you try and masturbate when you're crying. Box Cutters. Box Cutters. Box Cutters. Hello. Hello. And welcome. Hello. And welcome. welcome. To Box Cutters, episode 280. And seven. Ping pong balls, you hit them. My name is Josh Kinnall. Intro bot 3000. To my left, Glenn Peters, Toby Halligan, John Richards, Courtney Hockey. And to my right, Brett, Brett Cropley. Cropley. Evening, viewers. <laughs> Good evening, viewers. Coming up in this episode, some stuff. We're not kicking things off with the Box Cutters news. In 1927, the heads of the underworld were bloody tough. They were more dangerous, more ruthless, and more than a man could ever be. Meet Kate Lee and Tilly Devine, two vice queens who ruled two rival empires. Their battle left a scar on Australia's history and became our first bloody war. Joining us now on the Box Cutters telephone, yes, that's right, we got our own telephone for this interview especially, is Larry Reiter, who is appropriately a writer. I don't think anyone's actually drawn those lines of conclusion (laughs) before, but his name is Reiter and he is a writer and he wrote a book called Razor, which was the basis for the Channel 9 series Underbelly Razor, where... uh, as I understand, Melbourne, uh, Melbourne gangs from Carlton in the 1980s go back in time to Sydney and start cocaine trading. That's, that's my understanding from that. Larry, welcome to Box Cutters. Hi, thanks for having me. W- was that an accurate pricey of your work there, Larry? No. <laughs> oh, no, no. So, your, your book, Not at all. It wasn't even remotely close. But your, your book was Razor, and then Channel 9 adapted it to, to include yeah. uh, uh, Vinnie Cotoggio. Who was actually uh, just a, he was a Carlton football player. So ignoring Josh, Larry. It's the story of inner Sydney in the 1920s and 30s when it was ruled by two very, very powerful and ruthless crime lords who just happened to be women, Tilly Devine and Kate Lee. And um, they came to power just about the time when all these laws were brought in that um, did things like outlaw guns, um, which meant that razors were used um, as a, substitute, a substitute weapon when um, cocaine, which, which prior to that had been freely available in chemist shops, um, was banned and therefore went underground. When they stopped people drinking in pubs after six o'clock, which led to the proliferation of uh, sly grog shops. So um, the whole criminal empire was a result of um, these laws that were brought in that were you know, the most well-meaning laws uh, designed to have a positive effect, but in fact they um, plunged the, or parts of the city into gang warfare. Uplifting. <laughs> There's an upside. I mean, they're, they're great characters. The good thing about it is that they're um, the characters in there. And I've, I spent before I wrote the book, I spent about three years researching it. And since the book has come out, people have, have just been coming, you know, virtually every month or week or something with new information. You know, things like Tilly Devine's family in London. When they read the book, they contacted me and said, "Look, we just happen to have a, um, a great stash of all of Tilly's letters that she wrote to us for 40 or 50 years." And by by having access to things like this and to personal um, memories and reminiscences of these people, um, I was able to at least try to to flesh them out and make them real people and uh, not just one-dimensional baddies or goodies. Um, which is what I really tried to do when I was writing the book. And I think to an extent the underbelly people have succeeded in doing, um, in that Tilly Devine can be doing terrible things one minute and Kate Lee next minute feeling desperately sorry for them. And I think the way they've written them, um, warts and all, um, multidimensional makes you feel that way about them. It's, uh, one of the things that I, uh, that I quite liked about uh, the series, that there is a scene where... Uh, where one of them, and you know, f- forgive me for for not remembering their names, but one, one of them uh, is uh, hanging out the washing, but talking about the future of the uh, uh, of of the crime world if Phil the Jew swings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and they're just doing that. It's just it, this is just part of their everyday life. It's just part of the life they lived. They had they had families. They had businesses to run. Um, they had shopping to do. They had cooking to do. 
Kate Lee was a dedicated scone maker. Um, and we've captured all of those things in the series and, and in the book. And so it does make them real, I think. I mean, that's what real baddies do. They don't just sit around scowling and, and plotting bad things. They have to get through the normal business of life. Um, and then they turn their attention to, um, to the things that people find precariously interesting out there in the public. How did you come across the, uh, the, the story to start with? You say you did three years of research. What, yeah. what prompted those three years? Well, when I was seven, my parents split up and um, I went to live with my auntie Dolly, who was my mother's sister, and she was the proprietor of a place called Hensley Hall in King's Cross. This was 1957. And um, when I would walk to school at Darlinghurst, Prim- uh, Darlinghurst Primary School, she'd say, now, look, if you see these two women, um, their names are Kate Lee and Tilly Devine. And Tilly and Kate then would have been, well, Kate would have been 70 and Tilly in her 50s. So they were well past their prime. Anyway, Aunt Dolly said, cross to the other side of the road because they're the worst women in Sydney. So the seeds were instilled then. And then I was just talking by chance to my um, wife's parents one night over dinner. And the house um, where they live in Sydney's east used to be the site of one of Tilly's brothels and when they bought the block of land they moved in that was an old shack there and uh, there was a box of um, brightly coloured shoes that belonged to Tilly's prostitutes and these things are, these things sort of spurred my imagination and um, I was looking for a round about the mid 90s I was looking to do a, to write a book about about the city where I live and um, I just thought wow I wonder if there's enough information left to you know, to, um, to do the research that would, that would um, prove the foundation for a book. And I went to the libraries and I went to the Justice and Police Museum and I got the court transcripts. And I managed to interview many of the uh, surviving, mainly police, all of the main baddies were long dead by 1997, but the, quite a lot of the police um, were still alive. And a lot of people who knew the, um, the villains were still around too. And I just recorded, you know, scores and scores and scores of hours of interviews with these people. And I was glad that I did because um, there's only one of those people still alive today. So it was good to have captured them um, while they were still capable of um, telling me their memories. And all of those memories, to a lesser or greater degree, went into the book. So, so when, you, when you say that uh, it really started to affect Sydney life on an everyday basis, yeah, you, you really mean that because 30 years later when you were growing up, it was still... It was still a part of everyday yeah. life. Look, it didn't affect um, law-abiding people living out in the suburbs. Um, round about that time in the 20s, the public transport grid had just about kicked in and anyone who could afford to vacated the inner east of King's Cross, Darlinghurst, Surrey Hills, Paddington, and went to live in Rockdale or Ashfield, 12, 14 miles out of town, um, in a bungalow with a quarter-acre block and so forth. The people who couldn't afford that um, remained in the city, close to the factories, close to the work, where they could walk to and from work. And um, the people who lived there in that, in that area, um, the inner east of Sydney, were the ones who were affected. And even then, if you were a member of the public, um, you would see these things going on, but it's unlikely that you would get in the crossfire. It did happen a couple of times. But mainly the gangsters targeted each other to take over their own individual criminal enterprises, such as Sly Grog... Uh, Grog cocaine trading, prostitution, gambling, that sort of thing. So, Larry, Raise the Book comes out in 2001. Yeah. Ten years later, you're suddenly being approached to be part of Channel 9's drama Tentpole. Mm. How does that happen? Like, like what was, what was the, the sequence of events? Well, um, the week the book came out, I was contacted by Tony Collette, who um, was making a film called, I think it was Dirty Deeds, with the director, David Caesar. And as it happened, they were both reading the book at the same time. And David said to Tony, look, I've got your next part. It's um, Kate Lee. And uh, they were both on the same page and they contacted me. And Tony's company, Figurehead Films, um, she and her partner, Sally Cheshire at the time, they optioned the book for three years. And um, they attached David Caesar as director. Ironically, David has directed... um, uh, two or three episodes of Underbelly Razor. So that's, it came full circle. But the problem was they couldn't get a script. The scriptwriters that they, um, that they employed were determined to tell the whole thing. It virtually covers from Kate Lee's birth in 1882, the death of Tilly Devine in 1970. And it was just too much of a labyrinth. And there were many, many, many attempts at scripts, and um, none of them worked in that, in that three years. Then um, the company Figurehead Films was closed down when Tony started getting a lot of work overseas and Sally got pregnant. 
Um, so it then passed to Essential Viewing, which is another television production company. And they had it for, I think they had it for two years, and they weren't able to get a script up either. Then it was bought, um, I think, three years ago by a guy called Morgan Christie, who runs Silver, uh, Silver Spell Films. And he is a very enthusiastic young young producer, and he has been doing his darndest to, to raise the money and to get some scripts done. We got Ian David um, attached to write, and he wrote the first draft of a script. Ian wrote Blue Murder. So um, he did a fabulous job. But um, the financing was a problem, quite frankly. And then out of the blue, um, Screen Time um, contacted us and said to, said to uh, Morgan, would you like to... Um, would you, would you be prepared to sell us the television rights to this and you can retain the film rights? And the great, you know, the great sort of leap of faith, I guess, that Morgan had to make would be, would the television series help or hinder the production of a film? And he decided, and I'm glad he did, that it would increase awareness of the people in the period and perhaps make a film a little bit down the track easier to do than had there been no TV series. So, um... With my blessing, he uh, sold the television component of the rights to Screen Time. I, I can only imagine that a, a film that Ian David would, would write would be so completely different to uh, to the underbelly treatment of, of the stories. Yeah. Um, it, it's something that I've thought about a lot because I always envisaged um, any sort of filmic presentation of Razor as being small and dark and gritty and... Um, almost like Mean Streets or Elephant Man or something very confined and done on closed sets, maybe in black and white or something and whatever, whereas the um, the underbelly treatment, of course, is bravura and um, almost like, as Peter Gawler has said, a, a graphic novel. Um, a totally different approach. I still think there is... There, I still think there may be the option to, to do it um, in a small, gritty way. Um, uh... Once, once the dust settles on on Underbelly Razor, the uh, the television series, which which really covers the period from 1927 to 1932 as well, um, it doesn't really concern itself with the lives of Tilly and Kate later on. And one of the reasons that I think that the television series and the DVD is so compelling is that the script the scriptwriters made the decision not to try to tell the entire 80 year story, but to zero in on the most dynamic, interesting period when all of these people were at the height of their powers. I, I, I love that it's, it's got that, uh, that title card that says these events take place between 1927 and 1932, as if it's like an episode of 24. <laughs> over, yes, over, um, over five years or whatever. Oh, yes, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's just a great period to do because there's a whole lot of very um, interesting, compelling... Um, character-driven events that took place in the narrative between those years. It was the height of the Razor Gang Wars. In 1932, you have the consorting laws coming in that um, virtually put an end to gangs because um, if a policeman saw two people with a criminal record together on the street, they could be arrested. So that meant that gangs either dispersed or went underground. Um, and you've got the Depression kicking in, so... Things were changing a lot in 1932. The other thing is that the Sydney Harbour Bridge opened then, and that was sort of like an opening up of um, of the Razorhurst world, which is sort of small and sort of um, very self-contained. All of a sudden, there are different roads into this world from the northern the northern side of Sydney and other parts. With the opening of the bridge, so the bridge signified an end to something as well. So it seemed to be a a good period to be representing in the in the series. And what's your involvement with the well? Actually, with all these projects, Larry, how involved have you been as the, as your book has been out there, kind of developing into different forms? Yeah, look, I, I've been. I I haven't been enormously involved in the film, um, the various film developments of it, apart from reading scripts and making comments on the scripts that I saw. Um, with this, has been very different. They asked me to attend the script, the initial script conferences. And I worked with the, um, I was on daily call to the researchers to weigh in on various aspects of the plot and also period details, like did they wear wristwatches, how much did a twist of cocaine cost, um, where did Kate Lee get her sly grog from, all of that stuff. 
I was able to help them with. But I also I also read the scripts in various versions um, and was able to make suggestions. Not all of them were were adopted, of course. And then I sat down with each of the actors and talked about the characters they'd be playing insofar as I knew about them, insofar as my research had had sort of made certain facts about their lives clear. And then they were able to bring that to their interpretation of the person that they were playing. Um, I also got to play a debauched businessman in the final episode, so that was kind of fun. <laughs> and then do you feel an ownership over it, or do you have to let that go? Yes, I, I, de- I decided that, yeah, you do have to cut bait and, and let it go without... I mean, there hasn't been a moment since it started that I haven't been thinking about it. Um, but they have been incredibly um, welcoming and nice, and they've, they've involved me so much on this. And although there's things that, you know, it's commercial television, and it's a commercial DVD, it's got to appeal, um, it's, got to, it's got to really move, and it's got to have sort of dramatic narrative that makes sense, and often in real life, um, events don't make sense. People do things for, for reasons that just don't hold up in fiction. Um, and so therefore there has been the obvious liberties taken with, um, with the real events while remaining true to the spirit of those events to make it work as um, 13 episodes of a, of a television series. But by and large, I've been absolutely delighted with what they've done. With, with, with that in mind, though, the thing that's... Uh kept coming up for, for me is all of these all of these projects keep buying the rights to your book about something that happened that they could easily research and and do their own spin on why why do they need to buy your rights it's a good book it's a, <laughs> it's a good book it's um it was it was heavily researched it stood it's been selling really well for for 10 years it's never really been challenged as a source um I did a lot of research. I, I interviewed the people who were alive in that time, which no one can do now. If people tried to do it now, they would be resorting to either imagination or previously published accounts, which means going back to the to newspapers and things like that, which is a, a fairly flimsy source. Um, it's it's a part of my it was a part of my sources, but by no means all of it. Um, so it was it, and the book was the book was there. It existed. Um, it had an index, so people were able to cross-reference. Um, it's, I like to think it's, it's not just a, um, a, a quick, fast, true crime read. Um, I like to think it's got some depth and reflects the, you know, the, the slog that I put into it. And maybe they, maybe they recognised that and, um, and thought, well, we've got this. Um, we've got this resource, let's, let's use it. How true then do they have to be to your book? Is there is there a, a level of of truth to your book that they have to abide by? No, I, I don't think so. At the start of each episode, they have based on real life events, and um, I think once you have that based on, gives you the license to um, to either adhere to what really happened or to to go off on a wild tangent. Um, the underbelly people have kept really, really true to the. Um, to the events as they happened, but obviously, you know, I have no way of knowing what Phil Jeff said to Kate Lee in the in the fifty fifty club on the sixteenth of June, nineteen twenty eight. No one does because it was never recorded, and they've had to recreate that. Um, they have brought their interpretation of of events and of my book to the screen, um, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm happy with that. I think I'd probably feel different if I created these characters if. If I'd written a book of fiction, mm. and then they just took it and and changed it completely, but the fact that these people lived, they could they could have got their researchers to go to the to go to the Mitchell Library or go to the National Library and get drag out all the old press reports and, they, and, and they, do that. But these new things that have uh, come out, the letters and and so forth, have they mm. changed things in the book for you? Oh yeah, I've done. I I changed. I think it's had about four editions now, and. Each new edition has been changed according to the information that has come up in the meantime. And irritatingly, people never contact it. You know, they contact me after the, after the book has come out. It would have been so good to have the letters, um, all of Tilly Devine's letters for the first edition, but, you know, I'll accept them for the, for the third and the fourth. 
and they have they've really enabled me to um, to shed light on what Tilly was like as a person. You know her preoccupations about getting old, getting sick, looking forward to the Royal Easter show, looking forward to the next royal visit, that kind of thing that was never recorded and I had no idea about. Um, I learned all about that from the letters. I learned that Big Jim, her husband, um, who everybody who I spoke to said, oh no, he went to Melbourne and disappeared and died. Turns out he was a bouncer at a pub at age 72. <laughs> and Tilly would still, would still come and visit him and that has never been recorded. And so um, that kind of information, that, that anecdotal mouth-to-mouth um, passed down from generation information really does enrich a book. With the developed underbelly, did you ever find yourself actually having to step in and go, oh, no, Kate wouldn't have done that, or no, yeah. Tilly wouldn't have done that? Absolutely, yes. Yes, quite a lot of times um, I said that. And, um, and yeah, and, and to the writer's credit, they would say, oh, heavens above, okay, well, what would she have done? How can we make that dramatic point without her doing that, that sort of thing? Um, you know, for instance, Kate, Kate Lee sold alcohol but, and drugs, but she never drank or, or did drugs. And um, everybody just assumed that she did. And um, it wasn't until I saw, a, you know, a version of the script where, which had her sort of getting drunk. But I said, look, she didn't, she didn't drink. Um, it's weird, but it's true. And then, and then her, her character in the, in the series now doesn't drink. And so, yeah, that's an example of, of these things happening. But in many, many occasions, that happened. Uh, Larry, thank you so much for, for joining us on, on Box Cutters and, and telling us all about how uh, how to make $100 million writing a historical novel and then having uh, lots of people uh, buy the rights to it. Yes, I mean, it's weird because the book is out, the tie-in is out, and um, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, this is a great chance to sell lots of books because a lot of the work that I did for screen time, I did, you know, I just did it because I was into the project and, and I was enjoying it. I've never worked on a film before and I found it, I found it very different and enjoyable and exciting and I really enjoyed working with the people so um, I thought well uh, you know it'll be great to sell lots of copies with the book but of course the book comes out just at the time that Borders and Angus and Robertson closed down and, and we're not really into um, Kindles and things yet so um, you know it sold a lot of copies and I'm, 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 I'm really happy for the story to be out there and I hope people just enjoy the, uh, the DVD and have enjoyed the series um, for what it is. Well and, uh, and, and we'll link to uh wherever someone can buy the book on uh, on, on the blog and uh, and also the DVDs and uh, and, and hopefully get you uh, that house. <laughs> <laughs> it's been really great talking to you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Larry. Thanks for asking me. Station Ident. Hi, this is Lee and Shannon from the Bazura Project. Let us give you the gift that only a mother can give. A gift of divinity. No, it's not a head job to your son. It's the box cutters. <laughs> <laughs> now, now let's do the proper one. Oh, okay. <clears throat> what, are the, what do people usually do? Hi, I'm back from Africa again. Oh, hi, Courtney. hi, Courtney. I've missed you guys so much. Oh, I've missed you. <gasps> I've missed you. Uh, hey, so, little birdie told me that you like to watch Bold and the Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. I'm not proud of it, but I, I am happy to admit to you now that we've known each other long enough that we can reach this level of intimacy that I can share with you that sometimes I watch the Bold and Beautiful. Because I, I did not know this about you, and it's it's kind of it's blown me down. <laughs> Is that the In one a with, bad way? It's Ron, it, yeah. it's Ron Moss. Yeah, Ron Moss. Moss. Yeah. Yes. And, and somebody else has just rejoined it. Have they? Yeah. Don't know. Probably. Probably. There's a new casting thing. Oh, Amber. Some lady from... The from, blonde lady. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Amber. She was in it when I used to watch it when I was at home. Like in high school, I would see it sometimes and uh, when I got home from school and I would watch it with my mum. And she went away for a while. She was evil. She was going out with Rick, who now... I don't know what's going on with Rick. Anyway, she's come back again and she had an affair with, like, this guy who was going out with this, like, um, Ridge's daughter. Yeah. And then they... Um, oh, Josh is leaving. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, were you, were you talking? I... I... <laughs> I kind of drifted off. I, no, no, I'm fascinated. No, you're not. Don't no, lie. You uh, can just read TV Soap Magazine, which I, I think only to. exists to just tell you what's going to happen anyway. Yeah, anyway, so what it made, thank you for bringing that up because I wanted to talk a little bit about programs that you're not proud of watching. Maybe you don't tell people that you watch them. Guilty yeah. pleasures. Guilty I, pleasures. You know, I've been racking my brain for... I watch so much stuff. Mm. That sometimes there's, there's stuff that I don't get pleasure out of. <laughs> but 
Is that like like when you try and masturbate when you're crying? <laughs> and it's like really difficult. What's, what's not pleasurable about that? <laughs> the bit where you're like, this is not. Oh, maybe. I'll just keep trying. I just give up. Yeah, okay. That's uh, <laughs> I'm like that with television and masturbation. It's the uh, it's, it's the great lubricant tears. Tears really are. They do dry up though. Anyway. That's why you gotta keep crying. <laughs> I was so prepared to move on. The uh That's what she said. Back from Africa for this. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. No, so what do you watch that you gain no pleasure out of? Thanks for the Rhino Trophy, by the way. (laughs) I like that. I like that. I bought it special for you. That's good. Uh, Me, Hunter. uh, You, Josh. So the stuff stuff that I I watch that I get no pleasure out of, but I do that out of a a necessity. Dedication to this podcast. There were were guilty pleasures. And this is the thing. since, Since starting to do box cutters... No, like everything is up for grabs, so mm. nothing is a secret guilty pleasure. Right. So there was like I, I did watch All Saints for quite a while, but then I started defending it, and it wasn't <laughs> wasn't anymore a guilty pleasure as it was, it was a genuine pleasure. It, it became a genuine pleasure. Mm. Uh, but do you your, ever you your know cause. do you, you don't really watch TV in the kind of I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put the TV on. No, no, I don't. So so I never uh, I never really come up against anything. Uh, by surprise, mm. but yeah, but, which, yeah, but I do scour the the guides to well, find a, stuff that sounds thing. interesting. That's a different thing, I think, because you're you're activating a kind of like a, almost the intellectual part of your brain that goes, "Oh, well, that sounds interesting." Whereas if you're just flicking and you just go, "Hey, what's this?" I don't really so, believe in passive TV watching, though. Yeah, wow. And so you're recording. Are you not recording free to air? And so getting the last bit of what's just gone on because it's run over time or. Yeah, but usually what's gone on before is, you know, something that I know I'm not interested in. So you know, the renovators or, or okay. something like that. Hamish and Andy yeah. Gap, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, <laughs> and that's the, the guilty the pleasure show. of six people. Sometimes I'll sit down ratings. and watch the Bolt Report. Yeah, but the pleasure, deliberate. But the pleasure I get from that is... is Sadomasochistic. Well, watching it and, and working out how angry Brett would be by the things that Andrew Bolt is saying. <laughs> yeah. It's so much fun. Yeah. It's, it's, I think everyone should watch the Bolt Report with that in mind. <laughs> uh, it's so much fun. But yeah, I don't, I don't really have anything uh, that, is, that is a guilty pleasure like that. You have that. no shame. No, I think anyone who's listened to this show for the last six years knows I have no, no shame. shame. I have right. no, sh- I have no shame left. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? I have done in the past Ghost Whisperer, uh, the footy the show before whisperer. Eddie left. Right. Um, so I, I, I thought it was so much better than what it is today. Yeah. With Eddie Maguire and and Trevor Marmalade. Mm. Trevor Marmalade also by himself when after Eddie, Eddie had gone was also a, a voice of sanity. I think basically on the on the set. Now yeah. it's just. Out of control. We have Trevor Marmalade as the voice of sanity. I know. I know. <laughs> when, when that primary school, my friend and I wrote a letter to Trevor Marmalade and he wrote back. Yep. It was back when he was on Hey Hey. No, when he oh, was no, on was the, footy the footy show. show. Yeah, because we really liked the footy show. Oh. And he sent us a letter. You were in primary school when the footy show was on. Yes. Interesting. Oh, yeah. the, uh, you're so young. I am. Uh, you're like eight. Mm. The, um, <laughs> I shouldn't uh, even be up this late. Th- that reminds me, though. I did, I did used to have guilty pleasures. Uh, like Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And Saved Just by the Bell. The cat. But the cat, the cat had it's such all, a bad puppet. But it but it had all the greatest lines. <laughs> the cat had some fantastic lines. Uh, but I would watch. I would just watch entire episodes and Saved by the Bell as well. Not the new class, the original, no, the original. Saved by the Bell. But how old were you when they were on? Oh, I would have been 40. like. <laughs> I would have been like. 17, 18. Okay. Was the original yeah. class on over the 90s, mid-90s? Yeah. The original class was after I'd already graduated from uni. I didn't watch that. I just wasn't. But even through through university, watching mm. Saved by the Bell, uh, Saturday, mor- Saturday morning uh, television I watched quite a lot of. Mm. And some of it was really good and some of it was Saved by the Bell. But I would just keep watching it, though. I, just, I, couldn't, I couldn't turn it off. I so there, there are some things like that. And there are some things you watch in sort of formative years that you then go, I'm just going to keep watching this because, I don't know, at times, it got me at that time. Grey's Anatomy will hook me in and then, mm. and then I'll watch it for a while and it, it's just, yeah, oh, this, awful. Is, this is stupid. Why am I watching it? And mm. I'll go away again. Yeah. I, find, I find Law and Order is a bit of a gateway drug to those kind of terrible um, formulaic Original, like, there's original another freaking serial killer. Ori- I like original. I also like the sex crimes one. Yeah. Um, but that's because I like Stabler. Now he's gone. I'm not going to watch it anymore. Right. Um, 
as you do. But I have, because I've because I enjoyed that, I have then ventured into CSI a couple of times. Like it's 11 o'clock at night and, you know, on. Um, and regretted it immensely when I've watched but it. Crack Ferguson's is on at 11. CSI, CSI oh, Miami, I used to get quite a lot of joy out of. Yeah. It so over the top. Yeah. Uh, but that that lasted maybe a season. I yeah, I've seen a couple where I've been like, oh, I don't mind that. And I used David Caruso when he was on NYPD Blue. Yeah. So, uh, but doesn't carry over. It's but that's, disturbing that's, now. That's why I watched. That's why I started watching CSI Miami because yeah. it was David Caruso doing that David Caruso thing. Mm. Uh, and then it just became: Is he going to take his glasses off? <laughs> is he going to put his glasses on? What statement is he making? But that's kind of fun. I quite enjoy. You know, that, like watching it like, oh, this is terrible. But then I watched, I saw an episode of CSI, which wasn't even like pleasurably bad. It was just this guy, this plastic surgeon had been paying this girl to advertise for him. And then he like put a bomb in her dress and then blew her up because he didn't want to pay her anymore. And it was like, doesn't even make any sense. (laughs) That's just stupid. That's just uh, taking plot out of a hat. Yeah. It was just it's it was it's a random sort of Cluedo esque approach <laughs> to plot, you know. Okay, we'll have a bomb and a girl, um, but I do. I also uh, I will admit I often get to watching bad television through pants love. So I go, I think you're hot. What have you done? Uh, and then I'll go back and watch the episodes of the thing that they've done to see. Right. Um, so pants I'm, love, just so you can watch their pants dance. Essentially, Brett, that's pretty much what I'm talking about. Um, no. Uh, so, so, so you'd enjoy Warwick Capper in the uh, Joy of Sets in, 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 in a similar way, I, I did watch the first episode of Ghost Whisperer and I watched the first episode of another show mm. because I still have fond memories of Jennifer Love Hewitt from Party of Five, Party of Five yes. when she was hot. Yeah, she was hot. And, and so I, I will still watch the first episode of a Jennifer Love Hewitt thing and then go... Oh, that's right. She's actually really shit. She's a bad actress. She's totally bad. She's so bad. She's and in the most recent thing, she was playing herself, unconvincingly. <laughs> like it was just, it was so bad. She has a lot of. I think mainly her boobs have a lot of fans, but she does have a lot of fans. Was that in that uh, Perfect Couples episode? Yeah, yeah, Perfect Couples. Yeah, yeah that was it. Because she was on the list that that they're allowed to. Screw if they ever had the oh, chance. Oh, right. And yeah, yeah. she so awkwardly watched, played herself. I watched no other episodes of Perfect Couples, but I watched the first one. Yeah. Tricky. Yeah. <laughs> I recently, because I enjoyed The Shield so much, and I love Dutch because he's that kind of skinny, lanky weirdo yeah. that I enjoy. You, you, uh, you love a good cat strangler. <laughs> I do. Hey, you know what? Not even a deal breaker for me. <laughs> Picky. <laughs> hey, I know what I like. Um, Boys. <laughs> him uh, <laughs> and i watched an episode of cold case with him in it oh yeah yeah, yeah. you're I never cried. getting that hour back i cried at the end oh really the bit where they get the the ghost of whoever died and then they've solved the case and they always like turn up to sort of say thanks for solving my case but with a smile and not saying anything have you that ever, always makes me have cry. You ever walked in on someone's guilty pleasure <laughs> uh probably i can't no, I don't think I have, actually. A friend of mine broke up with her boyfriend, long-time boyfriend, walked into her house to, you know, console her mm. and brought her some food, whatever. I walk in, she's in her pyjamas and stuff and crying, that's all fair enough. Yeah. Watching Touched by an Angel. Oh! <laughs> that's been on late night. I don't... I hate it. <laughs> Brent, we've discovered your guilty pleasure. No, no, but I haven't been going to, to track it down or anything. I haven't been recording it. But you've been watching it when it's on. That doesn't matter, though. Yeah, that's not. You've been watching it when it's on. Yeah. Trying to figure out what it is. It's just the two two angel-y things, yeah. <laughs> angel ladies. Yeah, I believe that's how it's pitched. <laughs> so there's two angel things. <laughs> Can I have okay. a beer? Have you, seen, have you seen Highway to Hell? <laughs> no, no, wait, Heaven. Have you seen that? <laughs> have you seen Highway to Heaven? Right. So instead of that guy and the beardy guy, <laughs> it's two like angels, lady angels. This but is I, like I the episode of, of um... Louis when Louis is <laughs> like, this is the moment. So... <laughs> But I was just think of the, the uh, show with the Reapers. Um, uh, d- d- Reaper? No. Dead. dead Like Me? Dead Like Me, yeah. Yeah. yeah which I really love. That's a great show. Yep. I, want, I want to know um, what our listeners in- secretly enjoy. 
Because they're only telling us. They're not. Yeah, yeah. You can have yeah. pseudonyms. We don't care. When but I, I, I'm intrigued to know what people secretly enjoy. We'll share it if you let us share it. Uh, please say in your email or correspondence. But if way you don't comes. want to, it's like a confessional. You can you can take a, 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 a nom de plume. Give us a call now. Oh, no, wait. Just send us an email. Hooray at boxcutters.net. Hooray. Uh, what, what are your guilty pleasures? I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. We already know Brett loves Touched by an Angel. We're joined in the studio by uh, Glenn Peters and Nellie Thomas. Hello. Uh, Glenn, have, have you seen Lost? You haven't watched Lost. You watched like the first two episodes and... Two episodes and then walked away. Was yeah, it too I spooky did for that. you? I did that too. Ah, uh, look... It was. It's what eight years ago now? Was it something like that? That's, yeah, so, yeah, eight years. Yeah, start. I wasn't in the mood for it. Yeah, mm. I, I think now you would be. N- I was the same. I was the same. And then, mm. and then, out of nowhere, you went out and bought yourself. I did the the entire box set. Mm. Well, I kept waiting for your brother to give it back to you to give it to me. Yeah, which is done, which went... is which is done now. To be fair, to be fair, Peter Wilson was. Uh, was ahead in line it's but before always you. Always Peter Wilson between me it's, and quality television. Yeah, I know. No, oh, look, I, I watched the first couple and just went, I don't like fantasy stuff for a start. So I was already like, but, but, but since that Josh you, harangued me. And, and you started watching it. I started watching it. And every episode <laughs> is like some kind of fascination torture with oh, you. Oh, my God. I've been sending abusive texts, tweets and emails to Josh <laughs> ever since. So I must have started, what, two months ago, three months ago maybe. And I'm up to season six. So, Great. you know, I am I am pushing through. I nearly abandoned ship in season three. And season three is the hard. Like I, I, oh, I would the first to admit, season three is the hardest one to get through. But once you get through season three, there is all that joy of season four. And season I, four, I think, is is like the it's like the tastiest burger. It's good. I mean, look in general, I would say I'm clearly persisting, and I'm going to watch them all. But I have never. In my entire life, been more irritated or stressed by a show. No, it's, like, it's, never. It's the stress that I want to... Oh, so stressful. I seriously, I know I tweeted this and I go, oh, isn't that hilarious? She must be joking. I'm not joking. I took to watching The Sopranos after to calm myself down <laughs> because I love The Sopranos so much. If you are resorting to a mobster, like killing young women... <laughs> <laughs> to calm down after a show. That show is fucked up, Canal. Oh, my Lord. So, w- w- But what is it in particular that that is stressing well, you out? It's suspenseful for a start. Well, yes. I mean, there's there, it's got all your classic suspense tricks with the music and, you know, just the way that it's written and so on. But it's incredibly violent. Yes. I mean, it's incredibly but violent. But you've watched The Wire. Yeah, no, I don't find it anywhere near as violent as The Wire. I mean, The Wire is nowhere near as violent as Lost. No way. It's in context. It's in context, but also the kind of violent... Everybody's violent, which is kind of part of the point. Almost everybody's violent. Um, When, for example, they had Ben, who I still don't quite know whether he's really the baddie or the goodie and all all that's going on. I mean, I hate him. That's why Ben is great. That's why I hate Ben and I wish someone would punch his face in. See, I'd be violent too. Yep. But when they had him captured and, you know, there was – he cops so many beatings and he gets other beatings and he beats people up and there's butting people with rifles and all – I don't mind people dying. I don't like them tortured. You know, there's just so much torture in it and it was genuinely kind of getting under my skin. But it's the suspense stuff too and you don't know who's who. You know, it's you, that, you don't you don't know who's on the side of good and who's on the side of, of evil, or or if there is even good or if evil. If there even is, and obviously now I'm at the point you don't even know what year it is. <laughs> you know, <laughs> hold on now now you're you're both sort of selling it to me because I kind of like the idea of not knowing who's good and evil. So do I theoretically? See, this is why I love the wire because the cops aren't all goodies and the yes. drug dealers aren't all baddies, and I love that grey area. But in this, you literally don't know who. Like. It is they, they have deliberately set it up so that, say, Ben, who's the big baddie, they would deliberately engineer a whole episode to make you think, oh, he's actually the good one, is he? And, like, it's not like it's shades of grey within a person. It's like, oh, no, he was the good character. You saw it wrong. Uh, so it's, you're constantly it's, unsettled. So it's not, not developing. It is, it is, it is a 
genius. It, it is a genius piece of like seven year manipulation. Yeah, it is seven very manipulative. Years. Well, because it, it was seven, seven yeah. seasons, right? I think seven seasons. Yeah. Uh, like how long Sawyer. was Gilligan? Sorry, how long was Gilligan? Three hours. Three, three hour hours. Tour. Okay. Three hour tour. You know, it's a Sawyer is your classic. You know, where so you start off with you start, oh, he's, he's a baby. And then he's, he's a baddie, and then he's a goodie, yeah. and then he's just misunderstood, and yeah. then he's, and but the leaders in particular are the are the the, the most problematic ones, I think, because all the rest they do that lovely thing which all good television does, where no one's you know everyone's a little bit of everything, everyone's got capacity for evil and good and whatever, but the leaders they're constantly so who are you calling, moving around. Who are you calling the leaders? Pardon? Who are you calling the leaders? So, oh, ben. say Whitmore, Ben. Um, I mean, at, at a time it was Ethan, not anymore. You know, uh, Jack, even not so much them. Also, Locke. You know, and you start to and the scientist whose name I can't remember, the physicist, um, uh, Daniel. Daniel. You Faraday. Know, Faraday. Yes. So there's times where I'm going, oh, it's Faraday's in charge. Faraday's in charge. And then there's other times where I'm thinking, oh no, there's that guy that doesn't ever age. Maybe he's the boss, Richard. Is, the, is, you know, Richard Hatch. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the because I mean, this is this is what I loved about Lost, and mm. I still I still hold Lost up as being like, miracle television. Mm. Uh, but did it irritate you? Like, didn't you have your heart racing? You know, can't get to sleep, kind of experience, like the, a roller coaster. Oh, you have to remember, I was watching it. Week to week, and this is yeah, from see, from the very from the very mm-hmm. start. I was watching it week to week, yep. and the only times that I've watched episodes back to back, there there episodes I've already seen before. So you, you, watch, you had a were break. You rewatching once something. or twice a week as well. I wasn't I wasn't rewatching during the week, but in between seasons, I would go back and I watch the entire. And and before the fifth season, I think if you remember, went Brett, the whole I lot. went through the the whole lot up until oh. then, and then I did the same before the finale. Yeah. Uh, just to make sure that I had all my ducks in a row. Yeah. And so I already knew what was happening, so I didn't get that stress. But, yeah. yes, at the end of every episode, yeah. when when that uh, title card comes up with that yeah. big boom oh. at the end of it, and you're just going, oh, my God, when, every week I would go, oh, my God, it is that suspenseful. Remember, as I um, emailed you, I think, at the time, when Michael uh, came back and shot Anna blah, Lucia, blah, 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 blah. He won't remember by I that point. Yeah, all right. Just checking. Just and just I was like, I was just completely flawed. Like it just came out of nowhere, and it just it, it actually genuinely upset me. And it was like, but I love Michael. <laughs> but I love my. I didn't like Annalise that much, but just the the violence of the act, and you know when Walt got taken and that. Oh, so for for you, like when Walt got taken, oh. which is right right at the beginning, and oh, you were horrible. And and the things, Nelly bailed, and that happened at a mid-season break as well. So there right. were like four oh. weeks where uh, nobody knew what was going on. Yeah, uh, going through that at the time, yeah. yeah, it was it was harrowing, but it was only one bit of harrowing information at a time. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, I can see as a as oh, a, and that primal, th- you know, being I don't know if this is at all relevant, but I'll say being a mother, just like seeing like your baby being taken away by these psychopaths is the there's the you know, water recedes. It was just heartbreaking. It was just, oh, I felt completely beside myself. Can I say, though, the things I love about it and the reason I've kept watching, for a start, as a wanker with a philosophy degree, any show that's going to name people, you know, after like John Locke and Jeremy Bentham et al., I'm going to stick with, (laughs) you know, good on you for that. Um, And also any show, as I think Justin Hamilton had said in, in one of his tweets when we were exchanging about it, that makes you think and... Um, actually investigate physics further on mainstream TV, like not an HBO, not a kind of print. I mean, that shit's good TV. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. So it's quality TV, but it's really upset me. <laughs> so I'm struggling. In the uh, in, in, in the great lost auction uh, that they had after, the, the, the only thing that I wanted was Daniel Faraday's notebook. <laughs> yeah, right. I wanted that so badly. But it sounds like it upset you in a good way. It didn't betray you because often if a character's been written poorly and yep. they flip, I just get angry and just yes. turn the show off forever. But it sounds like it it remained consistent throughout. Look, there's no consistency in the sense of, say, that guy I was talking about before who shot someone out of the blue. I didn't expect that of him. But, yes, now that I have more information, it's consistent. 
good. But you never have enough information. So it upset me in the sense that I literally have a physiological response. It's like watching the news and being upset. You know what I mean? Like it's literally like what for me, it's making me actually stressed. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, this is my entertainment and my wind down time and my heart's racing and I'm feeling sad and angry and confused. <laughs> what am I doing? Project Runway, Project Runway. <laughs> <laughs> but look, it's a good show. I'll give you that for sure, I'm, no doubt. I'm glad we could cover off on it because uh, I've not heard anyone have that response to it. Right. I've, I've had... Uh, you know, because I've I've pimped it out to a lot yeah, of people no, you're, as, you're as a box, and uh, and they've all gone, oh, it's really good. Oh, I can't wait to watch the next episode. But no one has been as outwardly emotional as yeah. as you have. And hearing you talk about it, yes, I remember going through that every week, but yeah. but not verbalising it because it was uncool to do so. To do so, yeah. Uh, and you know, not saying that you're uncool, but you are. But the, <laughs> uh, but it's it's amazing to hear someone vocalise that. Because well, because it also I mean t- to me Lost was what network television could be, could be and continues to refuse to be and and it only happened out of accident yeah right. and you know in in any other year in any other season under any other corporate circumstances yeah. Lost would have been cut before did they before know the how many seasons even, they had they I didn't so. they didn't until season. Th- the end of season three. So they actually didn't have the whole story. They did. This is okay. the, And this is the problem with season three. Mm. They had the whole story. They knew the end point. They knew where they had to lead to. Mm. Uh, and during season three, they're going, well, we don't know how long we're going to go for, so we need to stretch this out, which is why the second half of season three is so, so awful. awful. Awful, awful, awful. And just violent, 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 violent. And, you know, it's interesting you raising the emotional response because what shocked me about it as I've discussed many times on this show before, you know, one of my favourite shows is Sopranos. I love The Wire. You know, I watch Gladiator. Like, I actually, I'm, I'm not, you, you know, stereotypical chick flick kind of gal. I, lo- I quite like, I was going to say I love violence. <laughs> I quite like violent television. A lot of the shows I watch are violent. But this had a completely different, I had a completely different experience of it. Have you Maybe seen Oz? Out of context. Have you seen Oz? No. See, I don't think you could watch Oz. If, right. if, if Lost is too violent for you, yep. Oz, while being, you know, extra, I don't know if you get off on homoeroticism, but if you do, it's, <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's bang up your alley, except for all the violent bits that make you... It, it, that kind There's of, so much tension towards... The, the as, tension. as it's building up to the violence. As, that, that I would think for, for, anyone, for anyone who is into homoeroticism would be like some kind of clockwork orange scenario of just equating the two. Yeah, uh, I didn't like that movie. Yeah. Do you know the only other show I can um, think of that uh, had, didn't have the same response but that had a similar feeling was The Eagle, which is one of my favourite. I think it's – is it Norwegian? It's, it's up there somewhere, cop drama that was on SBS. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant show but had the same kind of that psychological dimension, um, suspense, violence, at least hinted at. Like it's more a head fuck. Yeah, Glenn, you'd know yeah. that as Inspector X. Oh, right, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, I, I love violence too. I, right, I then really you love get it. into it. But, and I've always loved it, but watching something that's badly done out of context, like let's say Snowtown, mm-hmm. it just angers me. Oh, Wrong absolutely. I'm if it fetishes, fetishizes yeah. violence, it annoys the but hell out of me. It's there for the sake of it, definitely. Um, but if it's done well, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Spiral, my favourite show <gasps> the last five years. Spiral. Oh, I haven't watched that. Someone, I'll write that down. It's a, it's a French, it's a French uh, cop slash law drama. Mm-hmm. Somebody told me they were going to bring me Spiral season two ages ago, and then they just never did. Somebody in oh. this room. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. I did, but um, can so, I recommend you watch So is that, is that kind of on a par with uh, Irreversible? I didn't see Irreversible, but I do know that Spiral because I've been thinking a lot about Spiral during this discussion, right? Because it's got a a good and evil person, mm-hmm. one of the characters. You are not sure whether they're good or evil mm. for the whole time, and the last season and a half is off your face. In the sort of tension you get, you're oh, might, throwing things might around. Cross that out. 
No, no, you'll like it. Really? Yes. It Oof. sounds like that discussion that we've Same had. Same sort of thing. Can yeah. I can, I just said it, but I'll say it again. Can I recommend strongly that you three get the eagle? I've written it down. If you haven't watched it. In fact, I have the disc so I can I bought that. So Tweet me later. Yeah, it's really good. It's a really really good cop drama. It is, you know, it's subtitled. I can't read. <laughs> you, oh, do you speak French? Yes. No. I'm lying. <laughs> but yeah, no. I'll, I'll I'll come back on if I can when uh, if you'll have me yeah, at yeah. the end well, of Lost. Uh, yeah, come back. Come back at the end of Lost, and we'll all have watched The Eagle. Yes, and then we can have uh, a big chinwag about that. Because I know a couple of Box Cutters fans have tweeted me saying, "Don't let anyone spoil it for you." No one has to date, so please don't. Uh, so no one's told you about how it's all a dream. <laughs> I've got the theories. Oh my god, the theory. Lachlan and I sit there on the couch going, right? What? So what's actually happening? This is like the theories, which again is a sign of how good it is in one way, but also how annoying it is. But you've got to be really quick because I don't. I, I the first time I watched it, I didn't even remember Larry Hagman in that first episode. Really yeah, weird. but he's yeah, but he's uh, yeah, no, he's 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 there. He's there. He lands. Gets he, out of the shower and he lands on the. Uh, I don't know. Land, I was disappointed. La- lands on with the, the uh, on the beach at Honolulu. Oh and, no, no, uh, don't tell me anything about with, the with Bobby Ewan coming out of the shower and it was all a dream. Finds that genie bottle and uh, and Ginger wasn't it. really a movie star. Oh, no, I mean, she wasn't. I she wasn't. The house went actually really rich. How annoying. Cutters is produced by Josh Canal with Brett Cropley and John Richards and help from Courtney Hocking and Dave Lawson. John Richards edited this episode. Peter Wilson from Soup Giant is the man behind making sure you can actually download stuff. He's good that way. We'd like to thank 3RRR, the greatest radio station in the world, for letting us use their studios to record this podcast. Find them on the web at rrr.org.au or 102.7 FM if you listen to radio the old-fashioned way. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can show your appreciation by leaving a positive review on iTunes or maybe just telling some friends what they're missing out on. You can also donate actual cash money to us by using the donate button at the top of our website. Donating helps keep the show alive and makes us smile. Our website is boxcutters.net and you can find all sorts of ways to contact us there. Just uh, j- just quickly, because I-, I know we're running out of time, how much cocaine was in a twist? Um, oh my gosh, we're talking about measurements. The twist was, I think, um, I can't tell you the absolute weight because I'm hopeless with weights and measurements. <laughs> a twist was about four inches long and um, it, would be, it would be twisted up into an area about three inches by a third of an inch. And, and how much was a twist? Around uh, about 25 shillings. I am getting myself to the 1920s. <laughs> <laughs> 25 shillings, but some of, um, you had to be careful because um, people like Phil Jeffs would, would cut it heavily with, um, with Ajax and boracic acid and things like that, so, um, which caused some of, the, some of the problems that we see in the series. Uh, so you would never really know um, whether you're getting value for money or not. So, so you're telling me that if I'm... Going in a time machine, I should go back earlier to when chemists sold it. I think you probably should, or dentists. Dentists, dentists were the other ones. But I can tell you from personal experience, when I played a debauched businessman in episode 13, the cocaine that I was snorting was icing sugar. So things are much worse today. <laughs> the much simpler way to go about it, Josh, is just to get on a plane and go after the source in South America. And that's easier than making a time machine. Yep, yep. Right. Yeah. I've, I've compared, I've, I've done them both. This, this show, is, show is so educational. This is, this is why I would make a terrible drug mule. Hi, this is Pete Smith. You've been listening to or have just missed Box Gutters.